moment, the conviction of Derek Chauvin gave us hope and brought a sliver of relief to many around the country. But like so many things, that moment now feels like a distant memory. Roughly 24 hours after Tuesday's verdict, it felt like reality came crashing back down on us. On Wednesday in Virginia, Isaiah Brown was shot multiple times by a deputy. Brown was unarmed and remains in critical condition. That same day in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, yet another black life came to a premature end after a police interaction. Andrew Brown Jr. was shot and killed by multiple sheriff's deputies who the sheriff's department claims were carrying out search and arrest warrants. He now joins Dante Wright, Adam Toledo, Micaiah Bryant, George Floyd, and Breonna Taylor, just to name a few other black Americans killed by police. And that's just recently. Also today, Attorney General Merrick Garland announced that the Department of Justice would investigate whether there was a pattern or practice of unconstitutional or unlawful policing in Louisville, Kentucky, which may have led to the death of Breonna Taylor. And we'll have more on that a little bit later. For several nights now, hundreds have taken to the streets in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, demanding that the sheriff release the body cam video of Andrew Brown's killing. Elizabeth City Mayor Betty Parker has, call- has joined those calls. And so has Governor Roy Cooper writing in a tweet that Brown's death is extremely concerning and body camera footage should be made public as quickly as possible. Now, what we know about Andrew Brown Jr.'s death is murky because the sheriff's department has not released very much information. Pascatank County Sheriff Tommy Wooten has not made himself available to the public since a press event last Wednesday. The deputies who shot Brown were wearing active body cameras at the time of the shooting. Sheriff Wooten declined to identify those officers involved and declined to say how many shots they fired. Media reports citing police scanner audio indicate that Brown seems to have been shot in the back while in his car. And today, a family lawyer told reporters that Brown was shot in the back of the head. One eyewitness told the Raleigh News and Observer that she heard the first shot and ran outside and watched deputies continue firing. She said the deputies unloaded on him, meaning Andrew Brown Jr. Here's what another eyewitness told NBC News. He was sitting in his car, and about that time, the police had pulled up behind him, and he started to drive off, and they started shooting, and you could see mud slinging up on the side of his house everywhere, and they shot out the back window of his car, and... He lost control and he ended up across the street in um, Mr. Mike's yard and he hit a tree. They crowded around his car. They were shooting the front window of his car. On Saturday, Sheriff Wooten posted a Facebook Live video reading for prepared remarks. He said that he would release the video if granted permission. Only a judge can release the video. That's why I've asked the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation to confirm for me that the releasing of the video will not undermine their investigation. Once I get that confirmation, our county will file a motion in court, hopefully Monday, to have the footage released. The North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation is leading a probe into the shooting. Today, Andrew Brown Jr.'s family was allowed to view body camera footage, but only after deputies redacted it. And Brown's family was ultimately allowed to see only a 20-second snippet of the video. It remains unclear when or if 
The full video will be released to them or to the public. The video has not been viewed by NBC News. Joining, joining me now, Bishop William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign and a former president of the North Carolina NAACP. And Ben Crump, attorney for the family of Andrew Brown Jr. And Ben, I saw that uh, press conference today. There were a lot of angry folks there, a lot of uh, angry local people. I want to play a couple of them. This is Andrew Brown Jr.'s son, Khalil Farabee. It's like we're against all odds in this world. My dad got executed just by trying to save his own life. Multiple people calling that an execution. Uh, were you able to see the video yourself, uh, Ben? And um, would you characterize it as an execution? Well, Joe, our co-counsel, uh, Chantel, got to see the video, uh, Lannister. And the reason was this county attorney... They are, for whatever reason, and we don't understand it, they continue to try not to be transparent. They said no lawyers who were not barred in North Carolina could come with the family to see the video. So we had attorney Lassiter go in and see the video, and she took copious notes of the 20-second video that said three main things to us, Joy. And it was, number one, the fact that that when they turned on the video, they were already shooting. So we don't know what transpired to them shooting on the video. They were swearing at him, telling him them to show the hands. He had both his hands on the steering wheel. You could see that clearly from the video. His uh, son, as well as attorney Lannister said, and the fact that he never used a car to put them in any jeopardy or danger. He was evading them the whole time. They were shooting at him from the side and behind while he was getting away from them. And the final point is, it confirmed what we had already heard, that all the shots were from the back. You're right. And let me quickly play Bakari Sellers. He's also counsel um, to the family. And here he is talking about the redactions. How do you redact body cam video mm -hmm. without <laughs> the prosecuting agents. Okay, cover up. Right? So if I'm outside and I commit a crime, mm -hmm. you can't have somebody that works with you every single day redact the video. That's right. And he also mentioned that the prosecutors are very extremely belligerent toward him uh, inside of that meeting. Uh, this is a statement from Michael Cox, who's the Pasquotank County attorney on the redactions before the family could view it, saying the law allows us to blur some faces on the video, and that process takes time. This may be done when necessary to protect active internal investigations. Uh, this is the same county attorney who did say um, that Bakari said, say, I'm not going to be effing bullied to him. One more. Uh, so this is right. one more to you, Ben. Do you feel like this is a, an attempt at a cover-up. I've never heard of a video being redacted before even the family could see it. Does that sound normal to you? It doesn't at all, especially when it's the family. We're not talking about what's released to the public. Uh, Bishop Barber knows Eastern Carolina better than I would ever know. But the one thing that just was appalling to us was the fact that not only would you only show them 20 seconds, you redact it, their faces, but you then release the warrant and all the criminal history yeah. of Andrew Brown to assassinate his character. But you will blur out the faces of those officers and not give their names. Well, we want to see their rap sheet since they are putting out the rap sheet of Andrew Brown. And finally, Joy, my eight-year-old daughter could understand that, that if you're only showing 20 seconds of a video, then you're hiding something. Because if Andrew Brown would have did something bad in there, 
we wouldn't need a judge to sign yeah. it. They would have that all over the news. Absolutely. And Bishop Barber, tell us about this community, because this is a small town, I understand. This is not like a very big city. Tell us a little bit about this community and what the reactions are about, uh, from the people that you're talking with. This is Elizabeth City, uh, city where Elizabeth City State University is. It's in eastern North Carolina. There's a long history of police conduct in eastern North Carolina, and people know it. They know the arrogance. This is where Jesse Hams and others had his stronghold. Um, you should also add to your list uh, George Donovan Lynch in Virginia Beach, the list of those you said had been killed since the trial. But this is eastern North Carolina. And also, we should be putting pressure on the DA. See, what the sheriff didn't say was that he didn't have to go to the SBI. The SBI said, actually said, no, you don't have to do that. They could have went, gone straight to the judge. The DA could have done that. It's been 120 hours. Think about this. And I was thinking about what uh, Crump and, and other lawyer Daniels and Bakari, they were there. 120 hours have passed. They only got to see 20 seconds. 120 hours have passed. They only got to see 20 seconds. And that's why tomorrow, the local pastor, one local pastor has called for the North Carolina NAACP repairs of the breach, the North Carolina Council of Churches and the AME Zion Church. We're calling together pastors to declare there's a moral state of moral emergency. Now, they call it a state of emergency. No, the real emergency is this moral emergency, this judicial emergency. And this is not a matter of national security. That's when you redact. The national security is the killing of black folk. And it doesn't matter to us whether the cops are black or white. When you engage in violence toward people and shoot unarmed people and people fleeing away. And, and we, we think that there may have been a major rifles assault, like a SWAT team kind of going after this one young man with no history of violence. But what people should also know about Eastern North Carolina is people in North Carolina, they might be slow, but when we move, we take deep root and we stand. Some of the strongest work came out of Eastern North Carolina. So this fight will occur. The people will be nonviolent, but they will be they will be vigilant. They will be vigilant. And we're going to get to the bottom of this in this county. This cannot stand. This young man, seven children, two grown, five minors. He's a nephew. He's an uncle. He's a son, 42 years old, shot in the back, shot in the back. This is something that cannot stand and it won't stand. And we must put pressure on the sheriff and the DA. Lastly, Joe, you should know, I talked to the attorney general of the state, along with Dr. Spearman. You should know this. The DA right now, uh, uh, Brother Crump knows this as well, could call the state attorney general, just like they did in Minnesota, and say, take this case. Now, North Carolina, the local has to ask for it. The, mm -hmm. the state can't take it from him. But the local DA could right now say, this is too messy. We've messed it up. Give it to the state AG and they could handle this. All of that could be done in 20 seconds. Yeah. The same amount of time they let the family see this tape after 120 hours. You know, and Ben, that is a really good point. I mean, they've already three deputies from what I have here have resigned already. Seven have been put on leave. That seemed to be awfully, awfully quick. I mean, Pascatar County has only 55 sworn deputies. Out of those deputies, 10 of them have either resigned or gone on leave. I just want you to clear up something for us in the law. People keep talking about the fleeing, fleeing felon rule. You said something today that I thought was very important to repeat. You said that the most dangerous thing, apparently, to police is a black man running from them. Under the fleeing felon yeah. rule, police are not allowed to shoot somebody simply because they are fleeing, correct? Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? Evangelical pastor and director of Vote Common Good, Doug Padgett, on the rise of Christian nationalism and what's at stake in this year's election. We lack a story in this country about what our politics are supposed to achieve. 
And when we suggest to them that the common good can be your voting identity, rather than being Republican or being a Democrat or being fiscally this or that, big government or small government, but you care about the common good, people are like, oh yeah, that that I actually care about. That's this week on Why Is This Happening. Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and subscribe. Jen Psaki. Have you ever seen the House this dysfunctional? Rachel Maddow. If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? Mondays, back to back. Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, what do you think it means? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern, Mondays on MSNBC. Absolutely. The United States Supreme Court has ruled that it is not against the law to flee from the police. And it should not be the death penalty just because you're black and you're running away. We never hear about them, Joy and Bishop Barber, shooting white men in the back. But them shooting black men in the back in America is almost like a cliche. I mean, Jacob Blake Jr. in Kenosha, Wisconsin, Walter uh, Scott in South Carolina, Laquan McDonald in Chicago, uh, Terrence Crutcher in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Christian Hall up in Pennsylvania. I mean, the Anthony McClain in Pasadena, California, who literally ran out of his shoes and they shot him in the back. So we have to get this George Floyd Justice and Policing Act passed, and hopefully Bishop Barber, Eastern Carolina, can be added to the list of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Jacob Blake as reasons why we have to act now. You know, we uh, cannot hold this off. And, and you know, Bishop Barber, uh, Mayor Garland, uh, District, the uh, Attorney General of the United States, has announced a pattern and practice uh, investigation uh, in Kentucky. Do you think that there needs to be one um, in North Carolina? Yes, there needs to be. First of all, we need to pass to be a right man in North Carolina uh, House of uh, in the North Carolina State Assembly that will open up body cans for public. That needs to be done. But we need accountability. The only way you get accountability is you have to have proper investigation. Then you have to have proper. When you find that someone has murdered someone, shot them in the back, if they're police. A warrant, a badge, and a gun is too much power for a bigot and someone trigger happy. There needs to be prosecution without immunity. There needs to be imprisonment. And there needs to be federal investigation of pattern and practice. It's been a long time overdue in Eastern North Carolina. This case needs to make it happen. And you're right. We need to get these things passed. We don't need cinema or mansion blocking this. This is serious business. This is about people's lives. And we can see clearly, if you don't have the kind of federal law that standardizes this stuff, then you have one thing happening in one county, another thing yeah. happening in another county, depending on the sheriff, depending on the DA. No, we need accountability, transparency, and truth, and we need it now. Absolutely. And I will add to that, just for my, uh, you know, Bakari Seller said something, and he's very familiar with the media, to, to people in my profession, don't fall for the banana in the tailpipe. Don't run right. with Andrew Brown Jr.'s history because police do this. All, and Rudy Giuliani used to do this when he was mayor of New York. Police would kill somebody. All of a sudden, their whole juvenile record comes out. Everything about them. Well, they're not a choir boy. Don't fall for that. This is not about this dead young black man's history. This is about him getting killed. Don't fall for that. We don't want to hear stories all about whatever he ever did wrong in his life. We need to know why he was shot and killed, whether he was shot in the back while he was driving away. That is the story. That's just my plea to those of us who are covering this story. Bishop William Barber, uh, oh, Ben Crump. Amen. Thank you both very much. Not- really appreciate you both. And up next on The Readout. 
America's reckoning on police reform and why it is so hard to get rid of bad cops. You are going to want to hear these stories in our next break. Plus, Attorney General Mayor Garland, as I mentioned, announces an investigation into the Louisville Police Department following the killing of Breonna Taylor. And George Wallace became a conservative star with talk of law and order, which really meant racism and civil rights violations. Well, now a current Southern governor is mimicking George Wallace, and he's tonight's absolute worst. The readout continues after this. Last week's guilty verdict in the murder trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was heralded by many as a step in the right direction for racial justice. And while Chauvin will now face the consequences for the brutal killing of George Floyd, this was not the first time that Chauvin used excessive force during his 19-year career as a police officer. In 2017, he was accused of using the same force against a 14-year-old teenager responding to a 911 call about a domestic assault the minor was slow to comply with Chauvin's demands and was met with force. According to court documents, Chauvin struck the child multiple times in the head with a flashlight before applying the same type of neck restraint with his knee for, nine, for 17 minutes. That's 17 minutes as the boy and his mother pleaded with Chauvin to stop and that the boy couldn't breathe. Unfortunately, he survived. At least three other people of color have come forward with similar stories of excessive force at the hands and knee of Derek Chauvin. The New York Times points out that Chauvin's conduct before George Floyd led to at least 22 complaints or internal investigations, but only one resulted in discipline. So while Chauvin will finally have to serve time in prison for his actions, the question we need to ask is why are officers like Chauvin allowed to remain on police forces in the face of such horrendous practices? Joining me now are Mark Claxton, director of the Black Law Enforcement Alliance and a retired NYPD detective. And Michael Harriet, senior writer for The Root and the person who alerted me over the weekend to all of this background from Derek Chauvin. I uh, will confess that I knew that he had 22 past is, uh, incidents in his record, um, Michael, but I didn't know the specifics until I saw that in The Root. Talk to me about how egregious of a police officer this guy was. Right. Uh, we know that he's had at least 18 complaints of force alone. We know that he's shot or been involved in three shootings. He shot two people. He killed one before he ever arrived to arrest George Floyd. We know this about uh, Derek Chauvin. And he was allowed to stay on the force. He was never disciplined except once. And my point about this, right, when, when you when you see people talking about systemic racism, this is the point that we're talking about. Right. It's not about one guy doing one thing to one other person on one day. It is about a system that allows a person like this to stay employed, to move up the left chain of, of command and to flourish in a system that brutalizes black people. We can't forget that police officers in Minneapolis use, they choked someone out 370 times in the past three years. 60% of those people were black in a city that is 18% black, meaning black people were six times more likely to be choked unconscious by a police officer in that city. That's the, the systemic part. When, when stuff like this happens, you wonder why this guy must be crazy to have his hands in a pocket on camera while people were looking. No, the city allowed him to get away with that 
year in, year out repeatedly. And so he knew what was going to happen when when he got called out on it. Nothing at all. And that's why he continued to do it. Um, it's shocking to hear this, Mark, except that the Tamir Rice officer was um, got in trouble at his previous place of employment as a police officer because he had some psychological evaluations that he failed. He was able to resign, probably pocket a pension, go on to Cleveland, where he then kills Tamir Rice in what looked like a jump out. It was almost like a drive by shooting. He jumped out of the car shooting this 12 year old kid. You can go on and on and on. Police officers. We just saw one that was busted for apparently uh, planting evidence. It just keeps going. How are the these officers, in some cases who are deadly, literally for the community, allowed to stay in their jobs for so long and collect the pension at taxpayer expense. This is a tragically repetitious pattern, and it will continue uh, in, into the near future. Listen, in every other profession, you know, when you know better, you do better. Each profession has an opportunity to, to evolve, to turn better, to become better to educate better, to train better, to select better, not policing. Policing so mired in, in the muck of, of the toxic culture that it reflexively is stubborn and defiant and entrenched. And it will continue to be that way until we get to the point where we talk about moving away from the current structure. There's no escaping it. Realistically, we can no longer coexist. Black people can no longer coexist with this policing model, it has to be transformed into more of a public safety model, which incorporates other disciplines and allows the police, if you have what a, what a term police, to focus in on crimes, on offenses outside of, 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 of what should be social issues that, that, are, that are involved. Right now, this policing model is lethal to black and brown communities. And it's defiantly stubborn. Look at North Carolina, what's happened. Look at the reaction. Look at the lack of situational awareness as to what's going on, how they are responding in such a way. And, and to point one other thing out in North Carolina, Joy, I'm just stuck on this, is because they're playing good cop against bad cop with, with the media, with the attorneys. They're pretending that the sheriff really wants to release this video and the other entities don't. It's a classic case, but it's typical in it's typical in toxic police environment. It, it, absolutely. And, Michael, because you, you are in the, the business I'm in, you're in the journalism business. I mean, you have police rushing out to try to demonize Andrew Brown Jr. You need to know that he's got these drug arrests. You need to know that they did the same thing with Makai Wright. Well, you need to know these bad things about her. You need to know these bad. Th they, they rush out in French, even with George Floyd. Meanwhile, here's a piece in The Wall Street Journal. Wall Street Journal Review last year found officers in Minnesota Police Department who faced criminal charges during the past 15 years have been routinely allowed to return to the force. Half of them were still working there for cases involving the use of force. Seven out of nine were reinstated, including two officers in the Minnesota Police Department. One more item. USA Today. Less than 10 percent in most police forces get investigated for misconduct conduct, yet some officers are consistently under investigation. Nearly 2,500 have been investigated in 10 or more charges. 20 faced 100 or more allegations, yet kept their badges. Michael, we don't get to find out the records of these bad police officers, but we get all the information about somebody that they've shot. Right. And that's one of the reasons that we should be pushing for this George Floyd justice and policing bill, because that's one of the things that they they are that is included in that bill, uh, a database of police officers and their misconduct. And I think that's one of the easy that you rarely see an unknown person killed by police 
uh, for the first time. Like that police officer has usually shot someone. He's usually been uh, complained about for numerous times before they even get to the point where they can just blatantly kill someone. They foster this this injustice and they foster these criminals. It's a culture of criminality. And, and one thing I'd like to point out about what Mark said earlier the, the, the main part about this is that it doesn't work, right? Like, yeah. they're not solving more crimes, no. right? Like, 42 to 48% of all crimes in America go unsolved. It's not like they're stopping people from being hurt in neighborhoods. It's not like they're solving these drug cases. It's not like they're putting the people who import drugs into black communities in jail. It doesn't work other than killing black people. So the only thing that you can surmise is that that must be the goal. Dead black people must be the goal because nothing else worked right. No other business in the world would operate this inefficiently and hurt as many of its customers and still continue to operate in the same way. Yeah, absolutely. I should point out that it's not just police. The medical examiner in Maryland who testified on behalf of Derek Chauvin, now he's having all his cases reopened because now people want to see because he's also you know, written off some past police abuse as, oh, that person died of a heart attack. He's done that before. So it's not even just police. It's their friends. It's the people who help them. Mark Claxton, Michael Harriet. It is mind-blowing. Amazing. Uh, thank you guys both for being here. Still ahead. As the good old, uh, all the good old days. Ah, yes. The good old days when you could hit someone with your car for exercising their rights to peaceable assembly and free speech. Well, one modern-day Southern governor is making sure everything old is new again, which makes him tonight's absolute worst. Stay with us. It is the strongest anti-rioting pro-law enforcement piece of legislation in the country. And there's just nothing even close. We also have penalties for uh, people that commandeer highways, which we've saw in other parts of the country. They start to do that. There needs to be swift penalties. And that's something that just cannot happen. Well, that was Florida's Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, rolling out his new anti-protest law last week. What he didn't say in that press conference is that the new law grants civil immunity to motorists who just happen to hit protesters in the streets with their cars, effectively absolving those drivers of civil li liability. Now, when we covered that news on this program last week, I compared DeSantis to former Alabama Governor George Wallace, something that upset some of the usual suspects on the right. Now, it's a comparison that I've made to Donald Trump in the past. But whereas Trump talked a lot like George Wallace, even using violent rhetoric against protesters at his rallies. DeSantis is actually governing like the former Alabama governor, especially with his new anti-protest law. And that makes him tonight's absolute worst. After all, George Wallace made no secret of what he would do to protesters if they were lying in the street in front of his car. I said in California that if I come to that state, or go to New York or come to Seattle and a group of anarchists lie down in front of my automobile as president, I'm going to wean them of lying in front of automobiles. Now, by specifically cracking down on street protests, DeSantis is taking a page out of the Wallace playbook. In fact, Governor Wallace actually cited possible traffic violations as a justification to ban the historic civil rights march from Selma to Montgomery over the Edmund Pettus Bridge in 1965. That, too, was in 
unlawful assembly, according to Wallace, who unleashed state troopers on the peaceful protesters, including John Lewis, on a day that would go down in history as Bloody Sunday. In gleefully signing that anti-protest bill last week, Governor DeSantis also brought in the sheriff of Polk County, one Grady Judd, who gave a patronizing lecture to warn potential demonstrators about the consequences of this new law. But with his tough guy threat, Sheriff Judd sure sounded a lot like a throwback to another Florida sheriff, Walter Headley. As the chief of the Miami Police Department, Headley was famous for his tough talk and tactics against civil rights protesters in the 1960s. He's the guy who warned that when the looting starts, the shooting starts, something Trump as president would notoriously repeat. And if you watch their respective press conferences, sheriffs Judd and Headley practically complete each other's sentences. Pay attention. We've got new law. And we're going to use it if you make us. My job is to protect life and property. That's the job of every police officer here. And we're going to use any means at our disposal to accomplish this. Peaceful protest, we encourage, and more riot. We can tell the difference. People know the laws they're violating as well as you do and I do. You can compare and contrast. Look at Seattle, Portland. Minneapolis. That's the reason that some of the uh, incidents that have happened in the North have been uh, as serious as they were. Don't register to vote and vote the stupid way you did up North. You'll get what they got. Florida is among four states to sign anti-protest bills into law. And coincidentally, they all come in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement. But according to one Republican senator, There is no systemic racism in this country. It just doesn't even exist. And that is coming up next. On Sunday, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham managed to peel himself away from his AR-15 to offer a presidential version of I have a black friend. Senator, is there systemic racism in this country in policing? and in other institutions? Uh, No, not in my opinion. We just elected a two-term African-American president. The vice president is of African-American Indian descent. So our systems are not racist. America is not a racist country. Within every society, you have bad actors. That's right, America. Thanks to President Obama, Vice President Harris, and let's throw in Oprah while we're at it. There is no more racism. Ta-da! Poof! Magic. Meanwhile, Arizona Republicans are doing everything they can to dismantle the fair election that put a black and Asian woman in the White House to begin with. Recounting again, and six months after the election, the nearly 2.1 million ballots cast in Maricopa County, the state's most populous county. This partisan taxpayer-funded fake audit is being run by a private vendor called the Cyber Ninjas. You just can't make this stuff up. Whose founder has promoted pro-Trump conspiracy theories. Join me now, Jonathan Capehart, host of The Sunday Show on MSNBC and Republican strategist Susan Del Percio. Susan, unfortunately, this lands with you, my dear. A tweet from the Arizona Republican Party last Wednesday. The long-awaited hand-count and forensic audit of the election in Maricopa County starts Friday. Process will be live-streamed nationally exclusively to OANN viewers. 
will be not partisan, full transparency. Bloop, bloopity, bloop, bloop, bloop. No one's allowed to see it. Arvon Hilliard tried to get in and was told, you can't come in. You're not from OANN. Your thoughts? Uh, you can't make this stuff up, but let's, you're absolutely right, Joy, in calling it a fake audit. This is not an audit. These are oath members of the Oath Keepers and QAnon representatives who have appointed this group to count some ballots. Now, we have no idea if they're actually even counting them. There's actually no proof that they're actually counting these vet ballots. They, they've come out with some wild accusations. There is no reason to believe a single word that comes out of their mouths. Even the Republican um, election supervisors are against this audit. They know that the, it was done right three times. Now, if Donald Trump wants to lose a fourth, lose Arizona a fourth time, I mean, so be it. But I don't even look at this as a real count. It doesn't exist. I, I, I bet you they're burning the ballots and then dancing around a maypole. That's what I think they're doing. I mean, we can't go in unless they're from OANS. So how are we glad they're going to prove me wrong? Uh, my friend, Jonathan, uh, let's talk about another person, Rick Santorum who decided that he, he wants to take racism all the way back to the early 17th century. He said the following. Let, let's just play it. Let, let me just let him speak for himself. Here's Rick Santorum speaking. We came here and created a blank slate. We, we birthed a nation from nothing. I mean, there was nothing here. I mean, yes, we have Native Americans, but, if, but candidly, that, that, there isn't much Native American culture in American culture. I think the Iroquois Confederacy would have a word, but I'm sure you do too, Jonathan. It's your turn. <laughs> Ooh, Lord Jesus, help me. Blank slate? Okay, sure. You know what? He has a point. They did start with a blank slate, but it's blank because of genocide. That's why. That's why. Um, what Rick Santorum had to say is not surprising because Rick Santorum has been saying these things for a very long time on another network. Um, and it's sort of it, 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 anyone who has paid attention to even a couple minutes in, in a history class, assuming they still teach history classes, that what he said is not true. Um, he is still part of this legion of people who are living in this sort of fancy, fanciful, mythical um, view of how this country was formed, how this country started. And were it not for projects like the 1619 Project and a whole slew of books that have been out there that shows that this country's origins were not pure as they're portrayed. They were not um, beneficent as they've been portrayed. That in making this country, there was a lot of pain. There was a lot of, of killing and murder and genocide and a whole lot of other stuff that we as a nation, more than 200 years after our, our founding, we still try to ignore. And if there's one silver lining about the, the year of hell that we have been through, and I'm only I'm not even talking about the pandemic, I'm talking about the killing, the murder of George Floyd, is that at least there are a few more eyes that are open to the history of this country and why these things still persist. I'm sorry, Senator Graham, there is systemic racism. Were there no systemic racism? Well, one, we wouldn't be talking about you. But two, <laughs> George Floyd would still be alive. Yeah. There wouldn't be this fear of black people that is pervasive in every aspect of our lives. And I have to give a shout out to Carol Mason, the president of John Jay College, who yesterday on the show said 
That is the one issue that this nation has yet to address. Absolutely. And by the way, the people that uh, Rick Santorum thinks were, you know, the be all and end all, a fair number of them believe witches were real and burned them at the stake. I don't think that they got that from Jesus, because I'm, I'm pretty sure Jesus was not preferred to people saying they were witches and also believed in apparently human breeding and slavery just uh, solely based on being um, black. Um, let's also go to to stay with you for just a moment. We've also got Newt Gingrich, because why let Rick Santorum be alone on the terribles list? Here's Newt Gingrich saying some things about he doesn't like the flags that are flying at some embassies. If you listed every idiotic thing that the Biden administration has done in the first hundred days, uh, you begin to realize whether it's threatening everybody who believes in the Second Amendment or it's attacking everybody who believes in right to life or it is attacking people of traditional values who are appalled that this administration would fly the gay flag at American embassies all over the world. OK, so irony died the minute that Newt Gingrich, who was married thrice, and I think he divorced one of the wives while she was sick and mm -hmm. cancer, uh, talked about um, uh, family values. But I'm just going to let you handle that one, uh, Jonathan. Oh, no, you just stole my thunder, Joy, because that's exactly what I was going to say. I refuse as an out gay married man who's also black. I refuse to be lectured to by Newt Gingrich. Refuse. Don't even fix your mouth to say anything about anybody given your personal life. How, how many times have you, have you been have married, Jonathan? How many times have you been married? Uh Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Once. Okay. And, and that's all any LGBT person wants to be able to do to, well, not any, some do, wants to be able to get married. But what we all want is to be able to live our lives in peace in this country. Uh, uh, amen. Uh, let's go to one more. We got to get one more in. This is Kevin McCarthy, because I feel like the, the sort of connective oh. tissue to all of this, um, you know, Susan, is it, just this not this non-belief in reality and in m the modern world. You know, you have Rick Santorum wanted to go back to 1619, thinking that was like the good old days and thinking those people were sort of carrying the banner. You've got Newt Gingrich, who I guess maybe two marriages ago believed in marriage. I really don't understand his ideas on marriage. Now here's Kevin McCarthy attempting to rewrite his January 6th call with the former president. Take a listen. I was the first person to contact him when the riots was going on. He didn't see it. What he ended the call was saying, telling me he'll put something out to make sure to stop this. And that's what he did. He put a video out later. Quite a lot later. And it was a pretty weak video. But I'm asking you specifically, did he say to you, no, I guess not, some people are more concerned about the election than you are. No, listen, my conversations with the president, my conversations with the president, I engaged in the idea of making sure we could stop what was going on inside the Capitol at that moment in time. The president said he would help. Susan, is that the kind of cowardice that makes a man a speaker of the House? Uh, no, it's not. And what's even funnier is he thinks that kind of talk will actually help him with Donald Trump. That's the exact language that Donald Trump jumps on and will seek to make him 
not majority leader. I mean, that's the funniest thing that these Republicans don't get. Donald Trump is never for you. He's only against something. And listening to Kevin McCarthy try to, to just kiss up to Donald Trump and, and try and erase this critical part of our history, which he at one point actually recognized is is disgraceful. And it is the things that cowards are made of. I suspect that Donald Trump would not recognize Kevin McCarthy if he walked out on the golf course and handed him a cheeseburger and a Diet Coke. Because he don't care who you are, don't know who you are, Kevin. He don't care about you. He don't care about you or none of y'all. Anyway, Jonathan Capehart, who you should watch on the Sunday show every weekend, every Sunday right here at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Susan Del Percio, our friend, thank you very much. Up next, a COVID variant has been spreading like wildfire in Michigan, and this time it's younger people who are being hospitalized with Republicans' vaccine hesitancy keeping the pandemic rolling right along. We'll be right back. With more than 900,000 COVID cases reported, Michigan remains a national hotspot. And now cases are rising among younger adults. According to The New York Times, in some of the state's hospitals, entire units are filled with younger and middle-aged adults with life-saving equipment, again, in short supply. The spike in sick younger people reflects a national trend as well. The reasons range from a new, more contagious variant to something else public health officials are desperate to counter vaccine hesitancy. Joining me now is Dr. Farhan Bhatti, a family physician in Lansing, Michigan. And Dr. Bhatti, thank you so much for being here. What in the hell is going on in, in your state? Well, good evening. Thank you for having me. What's happening in my state is a combination of two things. Number one, we, ha- we have more cases of the B117 strain compared to any other state in the nation. And which and is that? I'm sorry, to, just to be clear, is that the Britain, the, the UK strain or what strain is that? Yep, that's the UK strain, quote unquote. And that strain doesn't follow the rules of the previous COVID-19. So, you know, they used to say that, oh, this is disease of the elderly. This is a disease of people with pre-existing health conditions. That's no longer true. This strain is much more virulent, which means much more contagious. And if you look at every uh, age group between age zero to age 60, if you look at each decade, zero to nine, 10 to 19, et cetera, all the way up to age 60, we've seen a 500% increase in the number of cases of COVID in Michigan because of this B117 strain. So that's on the one hand. And then mm-hmm. on the other hand, we have a very toxic political environment in my state yeah. where we have a Democratic governor and then a Republican-led legislature, House and Senate, that's been blocking her at every turn. They've sued her to try to take her powers away successfully in the Supreme Court. And, uh, you know, the echo chamber in which the Republicans exist, as well as their supporters over the past year, they've heard from President Trump, as well as all of his surrogates, that this isn't a big deal, that this is going to go away, that this is nothing other than the flu. And so that trickles down to the supporters. And we're vaccinating people in my clinic every day. And the bottom line is I need to get as many shots into as many arms as possible. And I'm hearing from way too many patients that live in that echo chamber, that watch those news channels and that uh, that go on those social media channels, that the same thing, oh, this is just like the flu, I'm going to take my chances, I haven't gotten sick yet, yeah. why should I get the vaccine, this is overblown. And when I hear those kinds of things, I I get really, really sad because as a public health leader, as a physician, I know that if we don't get to that 80% herd immunity, 
we're not going to be able to go back to the lives we want to live, to the lives that they want to go back to living. Yeah. That's the strong irony. Here. And that is what is, is scary. I mean, we do have some polling that's showing that people, you know, 61 percent of Americans saying they think the worst is behind us. You have about 8 percent of people not going back and getting their second dose. People feeling like I got my first dose. I'm good. Is this a combination of over optimism or you sound like you're saying it's not so much over optimism. It's people who are refusing to accept the reality of COVID, even though you've got these new strains that are living their lives like there is no COVID and then winding up in the ER. That's exactly right. Uh, in our ERs, uh, in hospitals across Michigan, we are seeing people who didn't take this seriously, didn't think they were going to get it, and then uh, you know they found out the hard way. It's really, really sad. It's really, really unfortunate. You know, I just saw a statistic today: forty-three percent of all Republicans in the United States are saying that they're never going to get the vaccine. Yeah, never. And uh, it, as an individual physician, it's very difficult. To, uh, to deal with that. You know, I'm spending so much extra time on each and every patient trying to convince them about the safety. And when we have conversations about safety, I generally can win people over. Yeah. But when we have conversations that are based on an alternate reality, where people are telling me things that aren't true, where people are telling me that this isn't real, that, that you're just making a big deal out of nothing, that I don't know anybody that got sick with COVID, that it's just like the flu and, it, oh, it's only are elderly we, are people your patients, and I'm young and healthy. Can, can, are, are your patients that have COVID doubting that they have COVID? COVID? Uh, you know what? So we've actually encountered some people in the ER that uh, were told that they have COVID and they were like, well, you must have given it to me because I didn't have that before coming in here. I mean, it, it, the alternate reality is, is it's laughable, but it's to that extent where people are so convinced that there's uh, some kind of conspiracy going on that we're trying to take their liberties and freedoms away. We being physicians. That is absolutely batty. I've never heard anything like that. I've never, I mean, well, actually I have, unfortunately. I've heard it from nurses and doctors who've been on the show. Um, The last thing I'll say is, has the Johnson & Johnson issue played into that as well, do you think? Very briefly, we're almost out of time. It has to some extent, but I'm also able to explain that away. I'm able to tell people that it's good that the FDA and CDC looked into it. They found that, you know, there's a very, very rare blood clot associated with it about uh, 20 people out of 8 million. But you know right. what? If you get COVID-19, your risk is 40 out of 1 exactly. million. Exactly. And by yeah. the way, people are without second thought putting all sorts of junk food and things into their bodies and they don't even ask what's in it. They just eat it and drink it and drink sodas and everything. Anyway, uh, Dr. Farhan Bati, thank you so much. Uh, good luck. Stay in the fight out there. Before we go tonight, a quick programming note on Wednesday night, immediately following the readout, we're going to be getting the band back together. Join me and my pals, Brian Williams, Rachel Maddow, Nicole Wallace for President Biden's first address to a joint session of Congress Wednesday night, 8 p.m. That's night's readout. Former President Donald Trump is facing 91 indictment charges, yet he remains the Republican frontrunner. On MSNBC's podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump, veteran prosecutors Andrew Weissman and Mary McCord break down the biggest legal developments and how they could alter the election. Never had a president who engaged in this kind of conduct who's running for office. He is using the criminal cases for his own campaigning. Search for Prosecuting Donald Trump wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Tuesday.